Today we turn our attention back to James, the book of James. So I'd like to have you open your Bibles with me to the book of James, chapter 2. While you get settled there, I just have a brief uh, announcement that may, uh, you may find important. Uh, Wednesday night, we spent a little time going through the procedure that we have here at Covenant for the ordination of elders. And uh, if you're interested in that, you can go online and listen to the, to the details regarding that. We have a number of men coming up for that. Uh, Chris Olds in our church, also Sandy Allen, and then, Lord willing, Mark Corral up in Rock Hill in our church plant in Rock Hill. It's going to be ordained soon. Uh, we're looking forward to that, probably, Lord willing, sometime toward the latter part of spring, early summer. There's a lot involved in that. I won't go into it this morning because I've already went into detail on Wednesday night. You can go and listen to it to your, for yourself. But uh, even our church here will be involved in some of that process. So if you could pray for these men, it would be very, very helpful that God would grant them the time they need. Uh, to get prepared for this ordination, and also for uh, myself and Alton as we read through the details of the examinations these men have to go through. And uh, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, but it's very, very important uh, for our church. So I would encourage you to do, so, do that. Well, today we're looking back at James chapter 2. And we're talking about true saving faith, particularly living faith. I'm going to be reading verse 21 through 26, James chapter 2, verse 21 through 26. Listen to what the Word of God says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Prior to this century, no serious theologian would have ever entertained the thought or the possibility that you could be saved and there not be any change in behavior or any change in your lifestyle. Verses like 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10 would say, as we all know, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 1 John 2, 4 says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then even the own promise of salvation we have in Romans 8, 29 says that all that God has foreknown, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is a predetermined, predestined plan to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. All of these passages, plus the passage we're looking at in James 2, scream loudly that there is no such thing as justification without transformation. That there is no such thing as salvation without sanctification. That there is no such thing as faith without works or a relationship with God with no righteousness from God. The Bible teaches us that that is not the case. Yet, 
It did not stop men like Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who was the co-founder with his brother of Dallas Theological Seminary many years ago now. It did not stop men like that to teach and contradict the very thought of what Scripture said and what men taught and the history of the church has taught for millennia. That you can be saved, and whenever you are truly saved and truly have saving faith, it produces works. In 1918, Lewis Sperry Schaefer wrote a published or published a little pamphlet called He That Is Spiritual. In that book, he actually articulated the belief that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through chapter 3, verse 3, teach us that there are two classes of Christians. One, the spiritual Christian, and the other is the carnal Christian. What is taught behind that is that the carnal Christian is a person whose life is indistinguishable from the unregenerate. That you can live in a lifestyle of sin, even in some cases, later on, some of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary said that you could actually have no commitment to the Lord whatsoever and yet be saved. They would classify them as carnal Christians. Now, most of us here today, if you've been around for any time in the church, you are familiar with that term. You may have at one time adopted that belief that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian, that you can be a person who lives in a habitual state of unbelief or a habitual state of disobedience and yet still be a Christian. The Bible teaches otherwise. Schaefer's dichotomy between the carnal and the spiritual Christian came really from his roots in dispensationalism. They have a tendency to kind of chop things up a good bit. And he believed that some of the teaching in the New Testament, specifically that Jesus taught about the kingdom, verses that we'll refer to later that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him, be willing to deny yourself and even your family and your own life, to become his follower, they would say that that was something related to another dispensation, not necessarily the church. B.B. Warfield echoed that he believed that the teaching of Lewis Berry Schaefer was really in line with the jargon of the higher life teachers that said that there was two levels of Christians. There was the one that kind of lived in a carnal state, and then there were the ones who had the victorious Christian life who lived above and beyond in the higher level of Christian life or the higher life, victorious Christian life it's called. The problem with that is ultimately is that it creates two kinds of potential believers. One that can have faith without works and another one that has faith with works. One that can claim a relationship with God yet have no holiness in his life whatsoever and then one that claims to have a relationship with God and then practices righteousness. I don't know if you noticed the two verses I referred to earlier, and there are many, many more. Do not give any availability to the idea of a carnal Christian that lives in a habitual, ongoing state of rebellion against God. Now, we're not saying, just in case you're wondering, we're not saying that Christians don't sin. In fact, I think all of us would agree with this, is that we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we all sin, right? We know that 1 John 1, 9 says, to the believer, that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, which assumes the reality that all of us have problems with the remaining sinful tendencies in our flesh. 
In chapter 2, it talks about that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our propitiation for our own sins, that whenever we do sin, we can go to him and receive forgiveness of our sins. So that we're not saying that a person doesn't sin, but what we are saying is that it is a false dichotomy to conclude that there is a group of people out there who can live as genuine believers and yet have no desire whatsoever to live in righteousness or have any desire to be obedient to the word of God. This teaching, by the way, is still very, very popular today. It's found in many, many churches. It has been later categorized as no lordship salvation. And that basically means this. You come to Jesus as your savior and then you divert till later on down the road maybe years down the road, maybe even decades down the road, to submit to him as Lord. And there's a reason why some have adopted that particular view. The first is this, is that they believe that there's a distinction between the office of Savior and the office of Lord. Now, I would agree that we would say that Jesus is Savior, and we understand what that means when we say that Jesus is our Savior. And we also know that there's a distinction that Jesus is Lord, that he's King, he's the ruler, he's the sovereign of the universe, to which all must submit and obey. But to make a distinction between the Savior and the Lord in salvation is a false dichotomy that the Scripture does not teach. And there's a reason why that many have adopted this particular view. Uh, The first is this. It is a belief, that is, that there's an unbridled desire to make sure that you keep some of the teachings of Jesus Christ in a different part of a dispensation. I referred to this earlier, like some like to take the words of Jesus in the Gospels specifically and the parables of the kingdom and make them part of another age. And there's also a desire to, some, for some reason, to separate, would be better to say hyper-separate law and grace, that that time in the past was law and Now, this is grace. We're all submitting to Jesus as Savior. We don't have to, quote, obey, as they would say, to be saved. Another reason why this has become popular is, and I give them credit for this, I mean, they're wanting to protect grace. Their desire is to protect grace, not to have any mixture of works in grace, and that is an honorable thing, no doubt. We don't want to have grace mixed with works in the sense that you are saved by what you do. We know the Bible teaches us that you and I are not saved by what we do or what we don't do. We're saved by grace alone. And the other is this. Another reason why this was adopted and has become popular in our day especially, and is still growing, by the way, is because they have to explain the huge number of people who confess Jesus but don't live for Jesus. I mean, there are probably, we could say hundreds of thousands, probably millions worldwide that have had confessions of Jesus who have made public confessions of Christ, have been baptized, and yet no longer walk with Christ. And so the question is, were these people saved and lost? Some would conclude, yes, the Bible teaches otherwise. Some would say, well, these people are carnal Christians. They're ones who made a commitment to Christ, but they're just not living for Christ. So in an attempt to explain the huge number of professing and confessing Believers, and I put that in quotes, who have no commitment to holiness or no commitment to Christ whatsoever, they have adopted this view of carnal Christianity. These dichotomies have lived, or rather, these false dichotomies have led to a 
very, very tragic population of people in the context of the local church who do not understand the gospel, who do not understand the gospel. One of the things that really caught my attention, I don't know if you guys were there or you were able to watch it online, when Paul Washer was at the Columbia International Universities a few months ago, and they brought in a praise band from another church, um, and this is my, my school I graduated from. And really, I was kind of shocked and ashamed to notice what they did there, but the people who were leading the praise band, it was all about what you're most commonly associating with those kind of songs, Bethel songs, Hillsong songs, um, you know, some of the repeat, repeat, and keep repeating songs. And whenever this was going on, I was, I was interested to notice what Paul was going to say at the very beginning of his sermon. Well, he prayed, as he often does before he preaches, and he, he said, Lord, please help these people to understand the gospel. Because he did not believe they understood the gospel, and I agree. I agree. There is a huge population of people today who believe that you can have Jesus as your Savior and live however you want to live. It is really a twist on the hymn, Just As I Am. It's you come just as you are and you remain just as you are. There's no change. I think all of us understand that the text we have before us today is one that teaches against that doctrine. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 14, through the rest of the text we're reading today, is one that is absolutely profound in the sense that it teaches that true salvation, true faith in Christ, is a faith that works. It is a faith that produces fruit. There is no such thing in Scripture. You cannot find it. This says someone can know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and not live or at least desire to live for him. And yet there are so many who have been deceived. James has already said on a couple of occasions in the first chapter, and now we're going into chapter 2, don't be deceived. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Don't be one of the people that look at the perfect law of liberty as you look into a mirror and see what kind of condition you are in and then turn away and remain in that condition. Don't be that kind of person. Don't be the person that says, you know what, I believe in Jesus, or as we looked at last week, I'm orthodox in my faith, my doctrine's straight, yet you have no personal desire for obedience to Christ and personal holiness. You and I should be checking ourselves, evaluating ourselves, and making sure that we have genuine saving faith. This is one of those topics that the Word of God has been very clear on repeatedly. Now, just to quickly review so you know where we are, the first point we brought up was the question of dead faith in verse 14. Remember that? The question of dead faith. And this is where James introduces the topic as he's building upon his theme that true Christianity will manifest itself in works and in fruits of righteousness. In verse 14, he says, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? As I told you last time, one translation translates verse 14, what use is it? Uh, what the profit? What's the benefit? If someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works, 
And the point of the text with the definite article, can that kind of faith save you? What kind of faith? The faith that says, I believe, but I don't do. The kind of faith that says, I love Jesus, but I don't keep his commandments. The kind of faith that says, I love God and I want to follow Christ. He's my Savior, but I have no desire for personal holiness. So those are important questions, and that's what he brings up. And then he illustrates this point by deedless faith, a profound illustration that would have related well to the people in his audience, Jews especially. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give the things which are needed for the body, what the profit? Same exact construction. What benefit? What's the use? His point is, if you see someone who has a need for food or a need for clothes, and all you say is, bless you, brother, I will pray for you, be warmed and filled, what benefit has that brought to that brother in need? There is no benefit. That's his point. It is useless. It's meaningless, empty words. Words that have no content. Words that have no work. Words that have no fruit. Words that have no real compassion. And he's driving home the point that if you have genuine faith, it illustrates itself in works of obedience. Here, the the, uh, work is compassion. One of the fundamental basic elements of Christianity is compassion for poor and needy people. And that's why he drives it home. That would have been very common in Jerusalem and the areas of Israel. Uh, Poor people were in abundance. And then you had the desperately poor, the beggarly poor. It would have been very common to run up on someone who was on the street that had no food or only were in rags and had needs to be met. And all, if all you do is give them words of compassion with no help, that doesn't help them. By the way, a faith that does not have works doesn't help you. And it will not save you. It will not save you. That brought us to our third point, the observation of an orthodox faith, which again settles well in our culture even because so many people claim to believe the truth. They claim to know Jesus. They claim to know doctrine. They claim to believe in evangelical orthodoxy. So what does he say? Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, later on in our text we have before us this morning, he's going to illustrate that abundantly with Abraham and Rahab. His point is this. You can talk all day about what you believe, but I don't know what you believe till you act on it. I have no way of knowing if your faith is real if it doesn't produce something. You say you believe, and yet you don't do. How do I know you believe, right? And that's what he's bringing home behind that. But then he really squares in on and nails the Jew in his heart in verse 19. You believe that there is one God you do well. That was the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And that was something repeated a number of times daily by Orthodox Jews. They believed in the Orthodox God. They believed in the right God. They weren't like the pagans of polytheism. They had the one true God. They had been given the Old Testament scriptures. They had, they had their doctrine right, if you will. And he says, if you believe that, that's a good thing. I mean, definitely not a bad thing, right? 
It's better to believe in the right God than the wrong God, and it's definitely believe in one God than multiple gods, but that's not enough. That won't save you. He even goes on and says, even the demons believe and they tremble. The devils of hell themselves believe and are orthodox in their faith, and yet they tremble. They're not saved because they're unwilling to submit to God. They are rebellious in their nature. Yet they've got one up on most, and that is they tremble. They literally live in fear of God. So he concludes in verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Some have rendered that, are you willing to learn, O empty man or empty head, that faith apart from works is idle or useless? The word foolish in that text refers to empty or defective. In other words, if you're not thinking clearly here and you're not following my thought, then that basically means that you are an empty head. You can't think about it. You don't understand what I'm telling you. Faith without deeds, faith without true works of righteousness is useless. It's useless. I told you last time the word in the King James is the word dead in chapter 2 verse 20. Faith without works is dead. James repeats that another two times in that text. But here in this text, you may have a translation that uses the word useless or empty. Uh, the word aragos is in some manuscripts. There's another couple of manuscripts that have another word that means empty. But according to most scholars, they believe that the predominant evidence of the uh, manuscripts is for the word useless. It has the same idea of dead, the point is, if you're dead, you're lifeless, and if you're dead, you're useless, right? It doesn't help if you're dead. Uh, most of us, I'm sure, if you have a business, don't desire to hire any dead people. They just can't get anything done, right? The same is the case in a church. You don't want dead people in your church. And I mean dead spiritually, because they can't see, they can't understand, they do not and, and are not willing to follow the Lord in obedience to him. So we can see how useless that is. But now we're going to move on to our text. And these are powerful examples of what James has been teaching. I want you to follow with me. Now some of you I'm sure are very familiar with these stories. But if you'll just kind of uh, suffer with me. We're going to go back and look at a couple of these things. I think you're going to find some very interesting points here with Abraham and Rahab. But let's begin by looking at the examples of true saving faith. So James picks up two examples that they would have been very familiar with, Abraham, obviously, and Rahab. These are stories in the Bible, true stories of events that occurred in the history of Israel, and they are those that the people that he's writing to would have been most familiar with. So to begin with, we look at Abraham as an example, and we're considering Abraham's obedience. This is a proof of true saving faith. Look at verse 21. Here's what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. If we were to stop right there and not go any further and explain anymore, all of us would be confused. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean justified by works? I just read the book of Romans. And I know that Romans teaches that justification does not occur by works. We would all agree. We would herald forth the great souls of the Reformation that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We all know that. We believe that. What in the world is James introducing here? By the way, many believe that this is one of the phrases in this text that gave Martin Luther the most trouble. Whenever it says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? 
justified by works. But notice how he qualifies it, the rest of the verse. When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Sounds like right at first that he's contradicting the entire theme of Scripture, doesn't it? You can see why some might consider the book of James not to be part of the canon. But if you understand exactly how he uses his illustrations, and you're going to see them in just a few moments, you'll find out that what James is teaching here is not contradictory to any other teaching in the New Testament regarding grace alone for salvation. Not at all. In fact, what he is doing, he's confirming the teaching of the apostles, and he's confirming the teaching of Jesus himself, of what Jesus taught regarding the true nature of saving faith. Again, look at verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father? Now to the Jew, remember in chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us specifically that he's writing to the 12 tribes there. Um, I had a commentary that I looked at, and whenever I read it, uh, it was of the more reformed persuasion, and it said the 12 12 tribes in chapter 1, verse 1 are the church. No, it's not. It's the 12 tribes. That's what it means, and that's exactly what he means by what he says. The 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. He's writing to the true people of God who are in the churches scattered throughout who happen to be part of the 12 tribes at this point. As I've already told you, this book does have a Jewish characteristic to it. He uses the word synagogue. Remember that? The word assembly. He just referred to the Shema of Israel, which was something the Jew would have been very familiar with. And he uses the two illustrations that Jews, again, would have been very familiar with, Abraham and Rahab. Most of the Gentiles would not have been familiar with all of that at all. Although, obviously, now we can be well-educated in the Word of God and we can know exactly what James means by what he says. But he picks up Abraham, our father. Now, he says, our father could have been two things in mind. He could have referred to Abraham, our father, in the ethnic sense that he's the father of the Jewish people. That's possible what he has in mind. Secondly, he could have in mind what Paul taught that Abraham is the father of all those that believe. If he's talking about the ethnic sense, if you remember, the Jewish people believed that they were saved by their relationship to Abraham. They believed that because they were literal, physical children of Abraham, that they were automatically saved and were part of the kingdom. You know as well as I do that the New Testament clearly teaches us that that's not the case. But that doesn't deny the reality that that's what they believed. In fact, if you remember in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, whenever this is dealt with, with John the Baptist, it says this, as John the Baptist says, Do not think within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, that has nothing to do with your salvation. Just because you are of Abraham's lineage and you're physically born an Israelite doesn't guarantee that you're going to heaven. God can raise up children from these stones. He doesn't need Abraham to do that. And then also in John 8, there's a very interesting uh, dialogue between Jesus and some of the leaders of Israel. They call them the Jews. There the Jews would refer to in the Gospel of John the leaders of Israel. And it says this in John 8, 39. They answered and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And they would often do that. That was like, it would be another way of saying I'm Catholic. That's supposed to end everything. Nobody talks about the gospel anymore, right? No. Just because you claim 
To have Abraham as your father doesn't guarantee salvation at all. So, but they would say that, as John 8, 39 says, they would say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What does he mean? They're physically the real, real descendants of Abraham. But what he's telling them, if you're the true children of Abraham, the genuine believers like Abraham, then you would follow in obedience to Abraham, and you definitely would follow me, Jesus says. He even says later on that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He rejoiced to see his day. In other words, Abraham had true saving faith. These who were physical descendants of Abraham did not have true saving faith. But I think the illustration that is given here in this text of Abraham that James picks up is to say, listen, just because you think you are born of Abraham doesn't guarantee your salvation. Let me show you why Abraham is different. And then he goes through the whole illustration of Abraham. But also there's a possibility that James has in mind what Paul taught, that Abraham is the father of all who believe. In other words, it's not just by obedience to the law, but it is the fact that you are a true son of Abraham. Do you realize that as a believer that you are actually part of Abraham's family because you are a true Israelite, you are a true Jew, if you will, you are a follower of Christ, a follower of God, you become that true descendant of Abraham. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching over in Romans 4. Turn over there just for a moment, Romans 4.1. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here to illustrate this. And this is Paul's teaching that, again, is not in conflict with James at all. Both really are reaffirming both teachings. Romans 4.1, listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What does he mean by that? In other words, what benefit has Abraham gained, listen to this, by being Abraham? Being the chosen of God, the called of God, the one that is the father of the nation Israel. Because it's all about the flesh, he's asking then. What benefit does Abraham have? Just because he is the father of Israel. As we even noted later on as we read Philippians chapter 3 when Paul gives his own testimony. He goes through this whole list of things that he says if anyone could basically count on the flesh to save you. He says I would have more confidence than anyone. Then he goes through and lists all of these details about how he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. In other words he was the best of the stock of Israel. He was a Jew. And he says, none of that could save me. None of that could save me. And that's what he's asking here in Romans 4.1. What's the profit then of Abraham in the flesh, that is, just being called of God to be the father of Israel? For he says in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, that's an important point because what he's telling us is if he was justified by works, then he would be able to go up into heaven and say, Lord, look what I did. And the reason why I'm here is because of what I did. He says, but he doesn't have that before God. God doesn't accept that at all. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, how was Abraham saved? Not by works. He was saved by believing, by having faith, by trusting God. He says in verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That's an axiomatic expression. 
What that means is this. If you are counting your salvation based upon works, what that means is this. You did this, therefore you deserve that. You worked, and therefore you get heaven. It's like a paycheck. You did all these things, therefore God is owing you salvation. That's not grace. It's not grace. Grace is, listen to this, unmerited favor. You get favor, but you don't get it because you deserve it. In fact, we get it in spite of us. We don't deserve any of it at all. But God in his marvelous grace grants us salvation that we don't deserve and cannot earn in any way whatsoever. So, again, you could read a little further in it, and we'll just highlight a couple of the other verses here in Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or imputed to him as righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then Paul says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? In other words, are the Jews the only ones who are able to get this salvation by grace alone? No, it comes to the Gentiles or the uncircumcised in this passage also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. He was not made righteous because of an external sign of the covenant. Abraham was not. He was not made righteous because he was circumcised. He was not made righteous because of a national identity. He was not made righteous because of some ethnic relationship. It was by faith, by believing. Galatians 3, 7 says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Let me read that again. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That happens to be all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And again, what is James pointing out here? He's basically telling us that Abraham is our father. Yes, in the ethnic sense, that doesn't gain any kind of salvation. But he's our father in the sense that he is the believing one. He believes and he had imputed righteousness. So let's go back to James now. James chapter 2 verse 21. Just so you know as he introduces Abraham what we're talking about here. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father? Yes, he's our father in the ethnic sense. But also he's our father because he is the father of all those that believe. And I believe that's really what James is really driving home here because he's saying our father, remember, he's the one who's the father of all who believe. Remember that? He was the one who was saved by faith. Remember that? Right? But then he says he was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Sounds a little confusing, but it's really, really not. Notice where James starts here in this text. He doesn't start in Genesis 15 where Abraham was saved. He starts in Genesis 22. Seven chapters later. In other words, whenever he brings up the point of being justified by works, he's literally not referring to the actual time that Abraham was saved, which is Genesis 15. He brings up Genesis 22 whenever Abraham 
was willing to obey God and to offer up his only son, the son of the covenant, to God as a sacrifice. In case you forget that, let me take you to a couple of texts to show you what I mean. Let me just read one. I want you to turn back to Genesis, okay? Just in case you don't remember, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. All right? Genesis 15, and here's the basic statement that we know that Abraham was saved through. He was justified apart from works by believing here in Genesis 15. And verse 5, then it says, Then he brought him outside, God brought Abraham outside, and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Now there's a lot behind this promise, right? Not just the nation Israel, but there's all the descendants that come from Abraham through Christ, through believing in Jesus. All the nations would be blessed. Verse 6 says, and he, listen to this, believed in the Lord. In other words, he trusted the words of God there. He trusted the revelation that God had given him. A verse I just read earlier says that at that moment, the gospel was preached to him. Just because we have this text doesn't mean that there wasn't more information given. We're only given this part of the conversation here in the text. But whatever else was said, the point is, it was clear enough to Abraham that he had to trust God, trust the Lord to bring about the promises and how that would come is through Messiah or Christ. And he says in verse 6, he believed in the Lord. He believed him. It doesn't say he went out and said seven Hail Marys. It doesn't say that he went out and started a synagogue and started doing works of righteousness, does it? It says he believed. And it says in the text, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the words that we refer to often of imputation. That God literally gave him righteousness, not because he's a good man, but because God was gracious. God was gracious. So he believed. He's saved in Genesis 15, is he not? The Bible makes it very clear that he is. The New Testament refers to it many times that he was saved at that moment when he believed God and God gave him righteousness. So why does James bring up Genesis 22? He brings up Genesis 22 because Genesis 22 is the proof that what happened in Genesis 15 is real. In other words, what he believed in Genesis 15 is put to the test and proven to be real in Genesis 22. Now go to Genesis 22 for a moment, and we'll see exactly what happened there. And this is Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 and following. Remember what James says. He says, Abraham our father was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Genesis 22, 1, listen to these words as we follow along. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Very important point. Why is he testing him? He's testing his faith. He's testing the genuine nature of what occurred in Genesis 15. He goes on and says, and he said to Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I, verse 2. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I will tell you. Now, 
just to put the context here, this is absolutely foreign to what Abraham would have known of the true God. The pagans did this. They offered their children on the fire and burned them alive. This is contrary to everything he knows about the, the God that has called him out of the earth of the Chaldees. And notice what happens. So in verse 3, so Abraham him hauled around and checked it out on the internet if it's true. No, it does not say that. It actually said, this is the most astounding text, folks. Because you've got to understand, this is Isaac. This is not Ishmael. This is Isaac. This is the son of the covenant. This is the son of promise. This is the one that God promised would come, and he did come, and he came in the late age of Abraham and Sarah, right, which was proof of the power of God that it wasn't done by the flesh. And then this son that he has that he knows the entire promise is hinging on, God tells him, go and burn him, sacrifice him, kill him. So verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of the young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Complete, absolute, total obedience. Then he says, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here a while. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And notice these words, folks. Very important. Don't miss it. And we will come back to you. Not I, we. What is he talking about? You know what Abraham is saying? I believe God's promises so much that even though this doesn't make a hill of beans of sense to me, and that's southern talk for Abraham. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to obey God, and God's got to solve the problem here because if he kills him, he's got to resurrect him, or this God I'm worshiping is not the true God. We know from the book of Hebrews that, in fact, that's exactly what Abraham believed, that Abraham believed that if he took his son out there and killed him on the altar, that God would raise him from the dead. Now, folks, that's not belief that's natural. That's not a faith that comes up by man. This is a supernatural, God-given regeneration of a man. And he believes God so much so that he says, we'll go away, but we're coming back. We're coming back. So verse 8 says, verse 6, I'm sorry. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid, his, laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand, a knife, and two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, said, my father... He said, here am I, my son. And he said, look, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound his son Isaac there and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Did you notice there's no indication in the text of hesitancy? Look at verse 11. Most amazingly, it says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, did you catch that? 
the angel of the Lord shows up and he speaks to Abraham and he says, I know now that you fear God for you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That's the angel of the Lord speaking. The angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is Jesus Christ showing up in what they call a theophany or a Christophany. That's just a theological term for the Old Testament appearances of Christ. He shows up as the angel of the Lord. He speaks to Abraham. Listen to this. The one that would be the sacrifice stops the sacrifice of Isaac so that he can be the sacrifice in the future. It's an amazing text. But the point is, we get lost in all the details. I mean, Abraham obeyed God. And again, the point is, is that he was justified by works in what way? He wasn't justified in the sense of salvation, but he was justified in the sense that his faith was vindicated. It was shown to be real. And if you say you believe in God and you're willing to trust him to provide for you and to make out of you a great nation through the covenant son, Isaac... And then God tells you to go kill him, and then you say, okay, we'll go kill him, but I'll tell you what, he's going to have to resurrect him because God has to do his work, and he will do his work. We're coming back. What an amazing illustration of works, right? Of works that follow faith. By the way, just going back now to James, the word justified that is used in our text here, common word in the New Testament, dikaio is a word in the verb form, has a number of different variations of it. But the word justified here has really two meanings. It has a meaning of justification before God and then another meaning of justification before men. In other words, when we use the word of justification before God, we mean that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and you are justified. Like Paul reminds us of in Romans 3.24, that we are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus He says in chapter 3, verse 28, that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. He also says in chapter 5, verse 1, that we have been justified through faith and we now have peace with God. That is the word justified used in the sense of our justification before God, before the courtroom of God. We have been made righteous in his sight, fully forgiven of all of our sin, all of our disobedience of the law, and we've been given God's righteousness through Christ. That's justification before God. But the Bible also uses the term justification in the sense of before men. And I mean by that is is that you are literally vindicated before men. Like in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, it talks about the fact that you may prevail in your words as you are vindicated. And again, the idea is through the New Testament that you and I are actually not justified in the sense before God by our works, but our Faith is vindicated before men by our works. That's the reason why James brings it up this way. He starts in verse 21 by declaring to us that Abraham was, listen to this, shown to be righteous, is the point of the word justification, shown to be righteous by offering up his son Isaac on the altar. John Calvin once said, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Last Sunday, if you remember, the topic that we had for our faith last time was lonely faith. Faith that is alone doesn't save. Faith that produces works saves. Faith that produces works saves. So look at verse 22 now. 
He says this, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? The assumption of verse 22 is that he already had faith. He had faith in Genesis 15. He showed his faith to be real in Genesis 22. So then James says, so you see that faith was working together with his works. Real faith, the word working together, we get the word synergism from it. In other words, true faith, genuine faith, was working with his obedience to prove and vindicate the real nature of his faith in the test that God gave to him. One other point I'd bring up here in verse 22, I, I may be making more of this than I should, but I think it's interesting to note that verse 22, he says, do you see? This is a Greek word, blepo, very common word in the New Testament for the word to see, to see with the physical eyes. It has the idea of literally seeing with the physical eyes. It can be understood in a metaphorical sense of to perceive or to understand. But what is interesting later on in the same text, he's going to say, see again. He's going to use a different word. And I believe the reason why James brings up the word blepo here is because of the exact point he's bringing up. He says, true faith, listen to this, true faith can be seen. True faith can act and has works and has fruit. You say you have faith and don't have works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. You see you see Abraham, right? Abraham believed. We have no idea that his faith was genuine until he was put to the test in Genesis 22. So he says, do you see that faith was working in a physical sense? Whenever you have someone that is genuinely converted, then they will show forth in visible fruits of righteousness. Now, obviously, there are ex exceptions to that. Deathbed, deathbed conversions are one of them. The thief on the cross didn't have a whole lot of time to go and show a whole lot of works when he died. But he confessed Christ, did he not? He admitted his sin and repented on the cross, did he not? Those are all works of righteousness that are done because of genuine regeneration and faith. In fact, the Bible even talks about this in a number of ways. One of the most prominent illustrations is the illustration of the tree bearing fruit. If you have a bad tree, it will not produce good fruit, right? A few years ago, Angela and I were thinking we were going to be able to overcome the economic collapse, and we bought two plum trees. We thought we could survive. Well, we bought them from Lowe's. Not good. Anyway, those trees have been out there for years. They don't produce anything. They're nice, and they look pretty. But if you're going to survive on them, you're going to die. We haven't had a whole lot of luck with our fruit trees. I don't even know what it is. I don't know what it's supposed to produce. And I'm not sure I would eat it. Who knows what it is, right? The point is, is that usually, usually whenever you have a good tree, it produces true genuine fruit. And that's what Jesus said, did he not? He's using this illustration in Matthew 7 now. Before I get done here, I know some of you are going to corner me now. Pastor, he's talking about false teachers here. I know that. Okay, I know that. But the axiom is universal. It applies everywhere else, right? He says in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, a good tree, every, every good tree bears good fruit, 
But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You will know false teachers that way. And listen to this carefully. You will know Christians by their fruit. You will see it. You will see it. There is no such thing in the Bible as someone who comes to Christ, believes in Jesus, has faith in God, trusts Jesus alone for their salvation, and then lives like hell all week long. Doesn't work. If it does, and you can live in that pattern of unrepentant sin, then there might be a question as to whether or not your Genesis 15 event was real. You have to ask yourself those questions, folks. We have so many people who live in that context. They made a confession. They made a profession. They believe that something they did years ago has made them right with God, yet they don't follow in obedience. Not perfect obedience either. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the direction of your life. The direction of your life. So he says in verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? That doesn't mean perfect in the sense of sinless. It means complete, wholesome, fulfilled would be another way of saying that. In other words, what happened to Abraham is this. He believed in Genesis 15. It was proven to be real faith, perfected faith, genuine faith, whole faith in Genesis 22 when he offered up his son on the altar. Look at verse 23, and this is where James builds upon this. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled, not in the sense of prophetically infilled, not in the sense like it's a prophecy and it was fulfilled. The point was what was declared about Abraham in Genesis 15 was fulfilled in Genesis 22. It was shown to be real. Look at 23 again. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. By the way, also, just to add a note about that, what a, what a statement to be called the friend of God. I don't know if you, you know, you read through the Old Testament, and you start out with the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're kicked out of the garden and forbidden to go back in, and the entire universe is cursed as a result of their one act of disobedience, and death is brought on all of humanity. By the time we get to chapter 6, all of humanity is full of evil and sin, and all their thoughts are evil continually, and God kills them all except eight people, and then all of a sudden a man shows up. He believes God, and God says, you're my friend. You're my friend. You want to be a friend of God? Or you want to be his enemy? The Bible says, according to what Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You're my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, if your faith is real and it follows in fruits of righteousness and works of obedience, then you indeed are my friend. Look at verse 24 now. You see, here it is again, different Greek word. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Here he's using the word hara'o or hara'ete, which is a word that has the idea of perceiving or understanding. Yes, you see it with the eyes, but you understand it. The first time he uses the word blepo, saying you see externally, you can see what the works do. They justify, vindicate real genuine faith. You can see it physically. But now do you understand it? 
Do you see and understand now, verse 24, that the man is justified by works, not made righteous in the sense of salvation, but declaring that his faith is real. His faith is real. Well, that's the first example that he gives to us. There's a second example now given to us in verse 25 and following. Hang with me. It's Rahab. Rahab. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? The second person that James chooses to use as an illustration here stands in stark contrast to Abraham. She was a woman and a Gentile and a prostitute. Abraham was a moral man. She was immoral. Abraham was a noble Chaldean. She was a degraded Canaanite. He was a great leader. She was a common citizen. He was at the top of the socioeconomic ladder. She was at the bottom. In other words, as far as illustrations go, you couldn't find a better contrast between Abraham and Rahab. And the point is, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how sinful your life is. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. The grace of God has the power to pull you out and to save you through faith alone in Christ alone. But no matter who you are, no matter how far you are away from God and how far you've fallen from God and how much sin you need to be forgiven, once you are saved, whether you're a Rahab or you're an Abraham, it will produce works. It will produce works. There will be a transformation. There will be a change. By the way, Rahab the harlot is listed among the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Verse 17 and verse 31, and also in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, did you know this, that Rahab is the great-grandmother of David? Well, let's turn to Rahab's story just for a moment. Look back at Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Now, if you'll stay with me, this is really good. Joshua chapter 2. I'm using the LSB translation on this text, reason-wise, because it translates the word Lord, that is all capitals in your Bible, if you have an authorized King James or New King James, because it translates the word Lord Yahweh. And I have a reason to show you that in just a moment. So I'll read it from the LSB. This is Joshua 2, verse 1 through 16. The word of God says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly, secretly from Shittim. Now that's the same thing as the Achaia Grove in the New King James, the same area. Saying, it's the actual Hebrew word for Shittim. Saying, Go and see the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of the harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, Men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent a word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men whom you have come to, who have come to you and have entered into your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are from. Now it happened when it was time to shut the gate at the dark that the men ran out, and I do not know where they have gone. Pursue them quickly. For you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and concealed them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them on the road for the, to the Jordan, to the fords. The fords are shallow parts of the Jordan River where you could cross over. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, she shut the gate, or they shut the gate. 
Now, before they lay down, she came up on the roof and said to them, listen to this. This is so key. This right here reflects the genuine faith of Rahab. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. Not just a God, not just any God, not even just the Lord, but Yahweh. That's the name of God. It says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you came out of Egypt and you did not... You did it to two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it, and our hearts melted, and the courageous spirit is no longer rising up with any man because of you. For Yahweh, listen to this, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. By the way, this is a good example of Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. It's actually... An illustration of the opposite of it. If you remember in Romans 1, 19 through 21, it talks about that God is known by the creation around us, right? And then God at times gives special revelation to people like you and I who have the word of God. But it even says this in verse 21, even though they knew God, Romans 1, 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Rahab heard about Yahweh, believed in Yahweh, and gave him glory and set him apart as holy from any other God. This is a pagan woman who's a prostitute who literally believes in the God of Israel. Calls him by name. Joshua 2.12 says, So now please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have shown you loving kindness, that you also will show loving kindness to my father's house and will give me a pledge of truth and preserve my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters alive with all who belong to them and deliver their lives from death. So when the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it will be when Yahweh gives us the land that we will show loving kindness and truth to you. And she let them down by a rope through the wall of her house, for her house was on the city wall, and that was where she was living, on the wall. By the way, just as a note that you may find interesting, Jericho, of course, archaeologists have discovered Jericho, and they believe it to be the oldest city, archaeologically speaking, historically speaking. In the last 50 years or so, they have proven, in fact, that the walls fell exactly the way that the Bible depicts them falling. In the New King James and the Authorized Translation, it says that the walls fell flat. The actual Hebrew word says to fall beneath. In other words, what's happening here is that the the walls are not falling literally this way, but they're falling out and flat beneath themselves. If you know anything about the archaeology of that event around Jericho, they had two walls surrounding Jerusalem. The first wall was about 40 feet high, and then between that wall and the second wall, it was filled with rubble, rocks, and dirt, and upon that area, houses were built. And then there was the second wall that came up, a little higher, obviously about 40 feet taller, but it was further up the hill. It was actually unscalable by those that would come against Jericho as far as an army is concerned. But when God wanted to conquer Jericho, he had the walls literally fall beneath their foundation. They fell outward and down and created literally ramps. 
And so the people of Israel that were coming to conquer Israel, or Jericho rather, were literally able to walk up the stones like a ramp into the city. They've also found, and you can look at it for yourself online, that the northern part of Jericho, there's one section of the wall that never went down, and also there's excavations of houses between the two walls. And many believe that that is exactly where Rahab lived. The one section of the wall that did not come down and did not fall. And as a result of what happened there, you all know the story so well, Rahab was willing to believe in the God of Israel and to protect the spies and to put her life at risk. And according to the word of God, based upon the revelation that she had of the true God of Israel, the Bible tells us she was justified. She was made righteous. Now listen, we all know this. They didn't have the four spiritual laws given to them in a track. They didn't have the gospel of John. They didn't even have the Old Testament scriptures. But what they did have is the revelation of God given through the people of Israel. And she had learned enough and knew enough that the revelation that God had given to her about Yahweh was sufficient to save her because she believed him and she acted. She was obedient. One other thing I would want to point out, and that is this, is that both Abraham and Rahab... The works that they do here illustrate what kind of works James may have in mind here. And what I mean by that is this. I just referred to it. Both Abraham and Rahab, none of them had a church to go to, a synagogue to attend, a Bible to open up and read. They had none of that. Whenever they were saved and even whenever they acted on behalf of their knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But what they were willing to do based upon their faith in God was this. They were willing to give everything up they counted as precious. Did you catch, did you catch that? Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. His desires, his aspirations, his wants, his ambitions, even his own son. He was willing to set aside to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And also Rahab was willing to give her whole life because she could have easily been found out and killed for what she did. The point I'm bringing home to you is this. Both Abraham and Rahab believed God so much so that they were willing to give everything they had to follow God. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. We're not talking about the kind of faith that says, you know what? I really believe God. Oh, well, I got enough rest. I'll go to church. Not that kind of faith. We're not talking about the kind of faith even that gives you enough desire to open your Bible and read it, even though that's important. We're talking about the kind of faith that is genuine saving faith, that is the kind of faith that says, you know what, I'll give it all up if that's what it means to follow Jesus. You remember what Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23? He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. They knew what a cross was. It wasn't something you hung around your neck. A cross was a means of crucifixion. It was a means of capital punishment. If you were going to follow Christ and take up your cross, that meant you were willing to die daily. Give your all daily. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Matthew 10, 37 says, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. They were willing to commit everything they had because they really believed. They truly had saving faith. 
One last example, the body. This one comes quick. Examples of true saving faith are Abraham's obedience, Rahab's fear and belief in God, and then the body without the spirit is dead. Look at verse 26. It says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Almost like a summation of all that he has said. The most obvious is so true, isn't it? Whenever your spirit is gone, what happens to your body? Dies. It's lifeless. There's no motions, no means of working, no means of accomplishing anything. Nothing is done without the spirit indwelling the body. Without the life-giving nature of the spirit that lives within you, your body is literally useless. Useless. The same is the case for faith. If faith does not have works, it shows us that it doesn't have life. It doesn't have life. Let me close with a verse that all of us know. And this is the one we read early, if you remember, a couple of Sundays ago. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. Some of you know it by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's our initial salvation, right? We're saved by grace, apart from works, through faith in Christ. But then he says, for we, that is you and I who are saved apart from works, are his workmanship. We are his personal project. And he's working on us. It says in the text, which God has prepared for us to do, he's created us in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. In other words, salvation apart from works doesn't mean salvation without works. If you're truly saved, brothers and sisters, then you will be one who has the evidence of fruit in your life. Now, next Lord's Day, we come together. We're going to talk about another fruit of true regeneration. It's the tongue. Make sure you come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for our time together in your word. Lord God, we are so blessed to have the examples of Rahab and Abraham. Lord, you have illustrated to us so clearly that true saving faith produces a willingness to give it all up for Christ, to follow you, to be obedient to you, to love you. And Lord, I do pray that you would forgive us for the times we fail. There's so many times, Lord, that we didn't stand for you, didn't obey you, and Lord, we are grateful that you are our advocate. You are the one who has died for us, given your life for us. You forgive us of all of our sins. And Lord, I pray today that as a believer here, you would encourage us, strengthen us to live in conformity to the gospel message as you work in us. Help us, Lord God, to work those works that you have ordained for us to walk in from all eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing.